We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome, everybody. Steve with Sense Fidelium. Coming at you with Eric Ibarra. When my brother would text me up, said, who's somebody you can get on orthodoxy? The apologetics against it. I tell him, just go to Eric. And he wrote a book. Let me get my back brace on right now. Here it is right here. You hear it? <laughs> on the papacy, which Amaze Press is coming out. He's got some great backers. Lee Scott Hans even recommended the book. Uh, I think I got, this is the Cliff Note version, correct? Um. No, so this is actually the full, you know, this is the full, I have the same one you've got. No, I was just joking. I think I heard oh, you yes. 1,100 pages. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Okay, you were ahead of the game there. Yes, so originally uh, it was like 1,100 pages, but uh, we had to trim down quite a bit. So, yeah, fantastic. Well, well, anyways, welcome. Thank you for coming back on. Thank you for doing this. How you been? How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on here. It's been a it's been a long time since it the has last been, time. Yes, yeah, since uh, we did one back in 2020, I think, and yeah, uh, I just been so blown away with everything else. I've been re- wanting to reach back to you, and now I saw them push. I get their emails. Maria sends it to me. Oh, and I saw okay, you came yeah. out with a book. I go perfect. I can nail. I can go ahead and folk, get them now. So, yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm uh, definitely grateful that you did. So yeah, so it's uh it's available on St. Paul Center, like you have up there. Um, there's an ebook version too, just in case those uh, who don't want to uh, purchase the hardback. Did you make an audiobook? Did you read it? No, um, that would be something. Um, I don't know how. I mean, with all the, I've tried to do that with just like ten pages before, and just all the editing and restarting. It takes like an hour to just do, you know. A bit, a little bit of text. I can't imagine what it would be if you know if I had to do something uh, uh, this long. That would just I be incredible. The, I, I know you feel. I read Gary Jane. It takes me an hour, and it's a small reading. One. So, what, so this came over during a weekend. You just got bored one day, decided to write on the papacy, or was this a long, <laughs> strung out events that you? Uh, I know this is like right up your angle, right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, as you know, um, uh, as a former Anglican. Um, I came into the Catholic Church, and I had to deal with the uh, the the claims of Eastern Orthodox because, uh, as an American Protestant, you know, most American Protestants anyway that are somewhat educated on church history, they're readily conscious of two basic options when it comes to Christian faith and practice. Catholicism or Protestantism, right? So Protestants like myself who start to look into church history, you know, they if they if they're in a like a Reformed Baptist or Evangelical Protestant setting, um, they might they might turn over a historical leaf when they pick up the works of the Puritans, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Theodore Beza. Um, um, Jeremy Taylor, some of the uh, you know other authors during the reform of the 16th century, and for them that's like going back in time, you know. But then, when they start to realize that the Catholic Church may have been correct about the teachings of the faith, the Bible, and tradition, sometimes they'll think, "Oh, well, before the Protestant Reformation." the only thing that existed was Catholicism. So sometimes they think their journey in terms of their intellectual journey might be over with at that point. I don't need to look at anything else. I've come home. I don't need to, I don't need to study anything else. But 
what you learn uh, when you start to be educated as a Catholic is you become readily conscious that actually there's another contender to the claim of the one holy Catholic apostolic church that goes back all the way to the beginning. In fact, there's not just another contender, there's three more contenders if we include the uh, the Oriental Orthodox and the Assyrian Church of the East. Um, but if we're, ter- if we're talking about the, the primary contention, we're looking at the, the Greek and the Latin schism, you know, the, 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 the break between East and West known as the Great Schism, which comes, which comes it, it precedes the Protestant Reformation by centuries. And so as a Catholic who becomes informed or a Protestant who, who wants to dig further back than the 16th century and the medieval period, they will become aware that the claims of the Greek Orthodox need to be put on the table and assessed as well. And so I took that task very seriously because I didn't want to overlook anything. Um, I wanted to know everything as, as much as I could. So I studied the, 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 the Eastern Byzantine objections to the West and you know, as you know, we've talked about this before. They had several objections to Catholicism. Number one being the filioque. But nowadays, after so much dialogue, after two reunion council efforts at Lyons and Florence, it really has come down to the issue of the papacy. And so I knew that if I was going to do an adequate investigation into these two contenders to the to the unum sanctum of the holy creed or the una sancta the, the one holy uh of the church you know the one church i would have to do a thorough investigation of the papacy and i thought i could just keep it buried into my own personal notes you know like the the, the old black and white composition notebooks you know i don't <laughs> yeah. i i thought i could just you know i've got like probably hundreds of them um, I, I thought I could just keep them in there for my own, you know, this is my own investigation for myself. I'm just going to, um, it got to the point where it turned, it went from notes to a systematic journaling of the investigation to finally, wow, this is getting so deep that I don't want it to just stay in my mind and disappear with my memory. And I don't want it to just stay in composition notebooks. I thought, you know, it would be great to put this all into one text. Um, So that way, anytime I want to consult it, let alone anybody else, um, I could just come to one volume and, and, and find what I found in my investigations. Um, But then it turned into wow, there's so many other people who are interested in what I'm learning. I started writing blogs, like you know. Um, I wrote those blog articles because I wanted feedback from other people. I wanted to know, hey, this is what I'm looking at in history. This is what I'm looking at in scripture. This is what I understand from these ancient councils. Um, are, is there any, are there anybody, are there any voices out there that could hop on board with me to test all of these ideas out and accompany me, there I go, I'm using the word accompany, <laughs> accompany me in this investigation. And I found countless people. Um, and the best part about it was I found a lot of Eastern Orthodox scholars, lay experts that um, were willing to uh, sort of spar with my content. And uh, after doing that for so long, you know, I said th- this would be excellent to just put into a book form, and voila! A couple hours later, you got something no. back in Eastern Orthodox <laughs> upside the head with. No, not two. <laughs> couple of hours, boy. Um, no, I started. I started. Started writing, probably in in two thousand. Actually, I started writing a book in two thousand eighteen because that's when I really wanted to start writing a book. Um, but then I got so lost in my thoughts. Now, I didn't know how to write. 
that very well. So I thought, yeah, I got like a hundred and something pages in and I was still in my introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, this is not going to be practical. Nobody's going to pick up a, a 2000 page book, you know? So I just, I just stopped. Um, but then in 2019, um, a year later or so, I said, you know, with enough with enough discipline, I think I could do this. I just need to learn how to summarize, how to shorten things, and how to make better references to other works in case people want to learn more instead of having to break everything down for every reader. Because I wanted to write for the expert and the, and the person who is just completely new to the subject. Um, so I started writing in 2019. I think I handed in my manuscript uh, at the, in January of 2020, I want to say. Um, and then uh, it finally got published uh, in November of 2022. So almost took three years from, you know, with all the editing. Mm -hmm. um, it just took a long time. Yeah. Well, congrats anyways on it. But so revisiting the debate between Catholics and Orthodox. For the average layman out there who may not, and I would include myself because I, I knew about the Philoque part because you and I thought about that and you're all, you can just type in Eric Ibarra on YouTube and you'll see a ton of his debates or interviews, things like that. What is the debate between the papacy? Yeah, so, you know, in the ninth century, you know, usually uh, back in the old Catholic encyclopedia days, they traced the schism between the Latins and the Greeks to this this period called the, the Photian era or the Photian councils where Photius the Great, constant, you know, patriarch of Constantinople, um, rose up a resistance against uh, the papacy. Um, but really, we start to see we start to see the rocks, like tiny rocks falling from the top of the mountain in the 800s with Photius. But then as the, as, as the centuries moved forward, just a couple of more centuries, the mountain started to shake and then you start to see, you know, uh, a collapse uh, in, in union between the Greeks and the Latins. And that was precipitated primarily by two things, the insertion of the filioque way into the Nicene-Constantinopolitan creed and the use of the use of uh, unleavened bread in Holy Mass. Um, so you know how today we talk about validity versus invalidity when it comes to Mass. Um, is this Mass invalid or valid? Well, the Greeks, many of the Greeks thought that if you used unleavened bread, it wasn't a valid mass. So you, the Latins were not eating the body and blood of Christ because they were they had they had an improper uh, matter in the in the in the sacrament, and that's big. I mean, that's huge. That's like saying that for centuries, the Latins have been not participating in Holy Communion. Right. Um, so it's a much bigger issue back then than we we don't typically remember this whole issue of unleavened versus leavened bread as a big issue because the the Greeks really buried that objection. You know, most of the Orthodox today they don't even bring it up anymore. Uh, but back then, that's that for the Greeks they thought that that was an invalid mass, and they also thought that adding filioque to the creed was. Uh, was primarily a heretical crime, but also a canonical crime. So the Latins were ecclesiastical criminals in their understanding. Um, but things got, as, as the Latin West was responding to the Byzantine objections, what kept coming up was this issue of the, the successor of St. Peter has the divine authorization to do xyz right well that that changed the focus from filioque unleavened bread to this issue of church government and now when you talk about catholic and orthodox relations everybody's thinking about papal primacy 
what is the office of the Pope? What rights and prerogatives does he have? Where did he get those prerogatives? What are the conditions for papal power, papal administration? So in, in many ways, and this is funny because um, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski was just talking about this on Meaning of, or on One Peter Five mm-hmm. podcast. Um, in many ways, the Eastern Orthodox and Catholic debate over the papacy is intersecting with some of the debates that are going on right now within the Catholic Church, because um, there are many people within the Catholic Church that are well-trained in theology. Um, They're even ordained clergy, uh, even members of the cardinal uh, of the cardinals um, who who have said, look, we need to we need to relook at what what are the parameters for papal uh for the pap- for papal authority father aiden nichols was it two or three years ago said that we need to put something into canon law that serves as some kind of a boundary in extreme cases you know so in many ways this book uh would actually interest very much uh, people who are in that debate, like the like the daughter, like the doc, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski's of the world, or the Timothy Flanders of the world, um, these people who are you know deep into this research on, uh, or like Professor Roberto De Mattei, mm-hmm. um, they would vi- they would find my book very interesting, because a lot of this this issue of of, of politics and the what precisely is the the limits of the papacy that comes up in the debate with Catholics and Orthodox. So the debate is really about does, did Jesus Christ divinely establish a, an apex to the government of the church? In other words, if you've got a pyramid, like a hierarchy, the apex is the very top. Mm-hmm. Did Jesus Christ divinely institute an, the apex of the church's government in the singular person of St. Peter, the apostle. And does that government pass on through a lineal succession to his successors in the Church of Rome? And is that government or primacy jurisdictional, you know, binding by juridical primacy? And does it have the right to, to govern pastor and teach the universal church until the end of time so that's really the debate now most catholics today did no would have no problem with that so the debates that are going on between like the recognize and resist versus the other parts of the you know contemporary scene they're all going to be on board with that the papacy is a divine institution. But with the Orthodox, you got to ask that question because they, they reject that altogether. So we got to, we got to look at that first. Did Jesus do that? Did, does the Bible teach that? Does early Christianity with the church fathers, the councils, do they teach that? And then we can move on to the question of, okay, now that we've established that this is something that Jesus Christ created, himself what are the parameters of this of this uh, papal office and so that's i go through i go through every major controversy through the first 1000 years every ecumenical council every doctrinal or disciplinary controversy that merits the attention for this subject uh, that's why it's so big um, and that's why it originally was 1,100 pages. Um, and I also go through some issues that the Orthodox uh, have ha- have learned about Catholicism in the last few decades that were never really brought up before. So you got books that were written about the Eastern churches like Father Adri- uh, Adrian Fortescue, um, uh, S. Rob- uh, Herbert, S. Herbert uh, Scott, um, 
and and some other books, James, Doctor James Lacutus. You've got some Catholics that wrote about the Orthodox in the past, um, and and we stand on the shoulders of giants. But there, the Orthodox have kind of updated their objections, if if you understand what I'm saying. And so, we I've had to not just go through history and say and and find what's there. I've also had to do some preliminary. Uh, in, in, in research in terms of things like religious epistemology, which is something that now is it, people have become aware that there's a difference in in um, intellectual paradigms between the way Orthodox people think about doctrine versus the way Catholics think about doctrine. And so I've got some chapters in there about uh, epistemological considerations. You know, how do we know the truth? How do we know what's true, right? Um, I also go through uh, historical methodology. How are we conducting our history? We can't just jump into the data. We've got to first understand what are the tools? What are the rules? How do we, what amounts to admissible evidence that both of us are going to mutually respect? You see, so the first few chapters are, hey, let's make sure that we 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 have a similar understanding when it comes to the sources, right? Scripture, tradition, councils, history, as well as how are we looking at these sources and what's going to be effective in determining whether the papacy was there or whether it was not there. So, and then that's when I embark upon the, the historical survey all the way to the end. And at the very end, I have the, the, a chapter on the comprehensive historical analysis, which is a, the longest chapter in the book. It's, it's where I come in and say, these are the reasons why I think that the Catholic view of, of the papacy uh, wins the competition. Um, against the Byzantine objections, against the, the Orthodox objections. And then I have a final, a final reflection based on all the research I've done, sort of like a, a kickback. Okay, now that you've done all this research, what do you have to say after that? Like some afterthoughts. That's the final reflection. So that's, that's pretty much the, the jet tour you know, through the forest. Because yeah, you bring up... Uh... That they actually have some good arguments on their side. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What What yeah. are some of that? Because I just like I told you off camera, read uh, Garage into the channel, and he brings up that uh, Corinth was looking for help. St. John was still alive, and they didn't look at well, – Ephesus was not too far from them, not down the street, but it went far. They could have looked at St. John, but they right. went to Rome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the, the you know, Clement, uh, the letter, letter of uh, – First Clement to the church at Corinth over the issue of uh, their uh, they had a, a little schism there with the, the with the priesthood. Um, so it, you know some scholars think that uh, Corinth wrote to Rome. Some some believe that Clement uh, heard about the problem and wrote on his own initiative. Um, there's evidence in the text that can be given to support either view um but you know i think i think in the book i take the view that uh, rome reached down on on its own initiative so it shows that rome felt responsible for uh problems in the church that were quite foreign to her own territory you know which 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 shows the the evidence is worth showing that rome definitely viewed itself as responsible to to govern not just the church at Rome, but other churches all around. Um, the good arguments that the Orthodox have are are, are going to be very similar to the arguments that are now being resurrected um, by uh, people who have been um, they've been uh, uh, scandalized by you know the pontificates since the Second Vatican Council. And that is, what happens when the apex of church government becomes heretical, 
schismatic or um, starts to fight against the Christian faith. What do you do then? Um, in the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries, you had uh, an ugly debate between the conciliarists versus the papalists or the ultramontans, the ultramontanists. Um, and for for centuries, you know, you had on the one side people saying, well, if the apex of the church went heretical, that would be devastating to the church because that would mean that, that we have no recourse. There's no higher head on earth than the Pope. So we have to we have to believe that he's immune from certain devastating extremities. And this is, you know, this is kind of where the issue of papal infallibility comes from. Um, I mean, it, it, it was a stated it was a stated belief for centuries before, but the the theological reasoning um, incorporated was was primarily uh, had the, the as a catalyst this issue of, you know, the apex of government, the head of the church, cannot. Uh, turn away from the faith, at least in his official teaching, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then the conciliarists were saying, well, no, if the, the, the Pope can very well become a heretic, and we have a very easy solution. We just assemble a bunch of bishops, and we manhandle him and get him out of office and replace him. Right? But the problem is that clashes with traditional teaching back to the first millennium it clashes with theological reasoning because what happens if certain parts of the church assemble in a council to depose a pope but then another council to compete with that council assembles and picks another pope and then another council assembles and says no the original guy that you guys thought you kicked out is still the Pope. <laughs> uh, I hear Bill Murray in the background. Cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria. <laughs> um, and, and we actually had something like this happen in the the, the Great Western Schism with the um, the papacy in Avignon and, um, you know, when uh, Pope Gregory the, uh, Pope Gregory the, I want to say it was the, Pope Gregory the 11th returned the papacy to Rome. Um, that's that's in 1378. This is what this is what broke out the Great Western Schism, mm -hmm. and and you had two rival popes, and then a third one came along at the end, for the stretch of 40 years. Okay, so that is kind of like a picturesque of what the Orthodox were trying to point out from the 11th century with the filioque. Okay, so they saw the head of the church going into crimes of belief and practice, and so what do you do? Well, the church has to wait. The church has to have a way to defend itself, and what better way to defend itself than through episcopal opposition? So, uh, but the difference between the conciliarists and the Eastern Orthodox is the conciliarists. They all believed Matthew 16. They all believed in the papacy as a divine institution. So they didn't believe they could just excommunicate the Pope and move on and, and conduct the church's government and, you know, through some sort of equal Episcopalianism, you know, like the way that the Orthodox and the Anglicans think you can do it. Um, the conciliarists believe, no, no, we need to we need to get the papacy back up and going. You see, so they they believed it was a, a divine institution that could not be ignored. Mm -hmm. um, so the strength of the orthodox arguments are going to come from the question of what do we do when the head of the church abuses his position? And, of course, their solutions to that, um, while they may have been convenient, Right, because if somebody's abusing his authority, if we could just ignore him and thumb our nose and just say goodbye, um, that's that's very convenient. Um, but it clashes with 
the biblical texts, the, the traditional text, and the the consensus of the church fathers, you know. So it's not, so they, they do have what looks to be like a good case, um, which is why the book is so thorough, because, you know, anybody, who, especially in our day and age, when we're predisposed against big government, right? And that's, that's a good thing when it comes to the, the machinations of human law. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't want big government when it comes to just ungodly elites that are free to manufacture whatever they want to man- manufacture. But when it comes to God's God's own instituted government, um, <clears throat> we can't just start going in there and pulling out structures and rebuilding things and changing everything around. Uh, that would be kind of like Israel saying, you know what, we We've, we're kind of through with this temple worship and all this other stuff. We're just gonna re, we're gonna make things much better than we than it has been. Well, that would be a, a sin to do. God would have destroyed them, right? Because that would have been sinning against the covenant. So Catholics, you know, even though we're going through a time where you know things are very unsettling with uh, the papacy, uh, we also know that. There are certain things that are just not within our rights to do. And, and you know, the spirit of 1776, where, you know, the, you know, our forefathers here in America, uh, the American Revolution gave their declaration mm-hmm. of independence. Um, we can't do that in the Christian church because we don't believe that the government of the church is something that came from the people. We believe that the government of the church came from Jesus Christ and the apostles and that it cannot be changed until Christ returns. So that's why the book is primarily about the question, did Jesus create the papacy? Because if he did, then regardless of the bad times, we can't just etch it out of the DNA of the church. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, you got the uh, vote them out, the vote harder idea going out there. You think of the papacy, you, you got to get that out of your mind. No matter if you're in Italy, Australia, wherever you got a democracy where 50 plus, 51 plus, uh, the majority wins. This isn't the, ma- it's like there was a, somebody came out with a book, uh, who's going to be the next Pope? I go, dude, that's a waste of my time to think about. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not like who's going to be the next governor. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've told people that, uh, I, the, the Orthodox do have a good case, but it's a negative case, right? It's kind of like the Protestants, you know, the, the, during the 16th century reforms in, uh, continental Europe, um, who, who's not going to sympathize with a lot of the problems that Martin Luther was, was identifying in, 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 uh, in Germany. There's a lot of things that he saw there that nobody's going to deny is problematic. Um, same thing with uh, John Calvin. And, uh, you know, perhaps we have some less sympathy with, Eng- you know, with the Church of England. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they, they, these men were not stupid. You know, they knew the basics of the Old and New Testament. They knew the mm-hmm. basics of Christianity. And what they were seeing were scandalous you know atrocious contradictions to the basics of the christian message uh by bishops and priests and uh, nobles and princes of the day you know um but like chesterton and belloc and all these other great minds said you know the protestants were very good at putting their finger on problems Mm -hmm. They were good problem finders, but the problem is, is what their solutions, their solutions were enlarging the problems <laughs> um, by breaking away from the church and starting new, you know, starting new churches. You know, obviously that's not what they intended to do. They, they just wanted to reform the church. They wanted to purify the church, but in so doing, they ended up, 
making new constitutional beliefs about what Christianity is. And so they ended up creating a they ended up creating more harm. You know, it's kind of like if you have a, a patient in a hospital who's dying, you know, and all the monitors start beeping and things are going off and left and right. And somebody comes in there just out of the zeal to save their life, comes in and, you know, tries to um, without proper training, without looking at the, the, you know, the rules and regulations of surgery and the know-how of basic human anatomy, just gives it their best effort to, to, to save the, the person's life. Uh, well, you've got a, a, you've got zeal, mm-hmm. you've got charity. They obviously are, are they want to, they want to run to the, they want to run to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. They want to protect the innocent. They want to save a life. But in so doing, they messed the whole thing up, right? So, so moral of the story, stay at a Holiday Inn Express and you'll be able to figure that out. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, Do you see a lot of that today? As in, maybe not directly happening, but problems are going on. There's a lot of people pointing out the problems. Very few talk about solutions or it's their own opinion solutions. And we run the risk of maybe doing that again. It's kind of like uh, uh, know your history so you don't repeat it in a sense. Yeah. 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 I think it is happening today. I, I mean, look, resistance to the papacy, it, it's always been with us. It's always been with us, um, even all the way back to apostolic times. You know, it was there in the, the first century, second century with the quarter distance quarter deciman controversy um you had north african resistance obviously with tertullian cyprian um i mean within within each century of the church somebody. there was some resistance to the papacy yeah. sometimes they were they were uh they had a good point you know sometimes sometimes the papacy may have been wrong in a in a certain way of doing administration right mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a place for that. Uh, but the, you know, the Protestant reforms went all the way to re redesigning the church, you know, and the Orthodox, I would say, even though they're incredibly different than the Protestants, I don't want to put them anywhere near the, the category of revel of revolt that we see in the Protestant world. Um, but they, I do, I have to say it, uh, they did reject certain, certain monuments that were embedded into the tradition of the church by divine law. And in so, in so doing, um, that, uh, you know, that, that severely falsifies their position. You have a chapter, and Bellarmine has a chapter too of, of uh, nobody. Basically, nobody on planet Earth can uh, can uh, challenge the Pope or judge a Pope. Explain that for us, and does that even carry down the layman? Yeah, so that's a good. It's a good uh, question. Um, so, you know, there's the, there's the old saying: the the first sea is judged by no one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that we see that that's quite traditional, relatively speaking. It goes goes back to the early church um and but most most of the canonists in the first millennium they would have attributed that to moral crimes you know so if a if a pope commits a a sin or a public crime um there can be all kinds of uh public complaining you know the saints calling for resignation or something of the sort, but there, you could do everything short of legally removing him or legally punishing him because a inferior cannot be legally punished. It cannot, cannot legally punish a superior in this regard. This was kind of the constitutional theory. Um, and, but many of the canonists, in the first millennium, including popes, 
uh, would have said that there's an exception when it comes to heresy, when a pope commits heresy, when he teaches an error and, and becomes a, what, what later canonists would call a formal heretic. Uh, in that case, there, there is an exception uh, to this issue of judgment. Now, guys like St. Robert Bellarmine, you know, came later in this, you know, in the uh, post-reform period, um, he would have said that it's not technically judging the Pope. It would have been something more along the lines of declaring the fact that a Pope is a formal heretic, and in consequence of that, inherently, he forfeits his office, right? So there's a, basically, it's just a, an investigation to determine the vacancy of the papal chair. Now, Robert Bellarmine did not believe that that was possible. Personally, he did not believe it was possible uh, because he thought the promise of Christ to Peter was too strong to allow for a formally heretical pope in that way. But he did say, if this ever did happen, this would be the most reasonable way to go about it. Um, and, you know, there's been other theories. Um, today, we, we, the, church, the church has never given a, a magisterial document on, on what to do when she fails in her administration. That would be really nice. Um, but we don't have that. So, the, you know, theologians, canonists are left to... Um, speculation in in some regard, in some respects, but uh, you brought up laity. Yeah, it's, it, that's an important observation because when we go back into history and we find all these bishops resisting against the Pope, uh, or today you might have dubia or efforts to do like a filial correction or something like that. This is not. It, it's it, there's a difference between bishops those who those who hold the highest order of sacramental order in the priesthood is a difference between bishops doing it including uh but not limited to the cardinals mm -hmm. and and just people just lay, lay lay people or even under clergy like presbyters and deacons priests and deacons um that is you know we we are in a hierarchical church and uh there definitely is a place for lay people to raise their voices. Canon law even, in this case, canon law even makes provision. Um, and canon 212, for example, um, it's not as if we're completely muted whenever there's abuses going on. But having recourse to making big-time determinations, like, oh, the Pope is a formal heretic, or the Pope's no longer Pope. That is definitely not something in the laps of the laity. About the uh, Easterns again, you bring up about the, they have good arguments, but they fail because if they reject the early fathers, they basically, Catholicism is basically null and void. It's their guys, it's our guys. They have to accept the early fathers, right? What is yeah, exactly. the evidence? I'm sorry? Yeah, no, I said, yeah, I, I agreed. So what are some of the some of the guys that they accept that we would accept too that would say that would basically I wouldn't say take down their argument but argues in the favor of the papacy? Yeah, so uh, you know when you're talking to Orthodox today, for example, um, it, it, it's quite unfortunate that uh, some of many of them have simply borrowed some of the arguments that uh, that Protestants were using against Catholicism in the 16th century. So all the way back to doubting whether Peter is actually the rock of Matthew 16, for example. So you're liable to come across an Eastern Orthodox person today. And if they tell you, oh, Peter's not the rock, Jesus is the rock. Peter, Peter didn't get the keys alone. Everybody's got the keys. All bishops and priests have the keys in the same exact way. Um, so, though you should not be surprised in anybody, in any of your listeners, 
who who speak with Orthodox people on a regular basis, perhaps even even semi regular, uh, they will not be shocked to hear something like that. Well, look, those are pr- primarily Protestant objections. You know, um, medieval Byzantium did not usually go that route. So it's it's usually post reforms of the you know Protestant reforms where you start getting these arguments. So if we go back into the councils the seven ecumenical councils, which for the Orthodox, those are unquestionably authoritative. Mm-hmm. So if you find something within the seven ecumenical councils, the Orthodox are going to have to agree to it by their own standards. Well, three or four of those seven ecumenical councils clearly teach that St. Peter alone is the rock of the church in Matthew 16. And that he was uniquely given the keys of the kingdom for the purpose of governing the universal church. So right off the bat, uh, if you're talking to an Eastern Orthodox person and they have these objections, which they do. um, I mean, even their scholars and their clergy reject that. Often, often enough anyway. So you could just point to the councils and say, you know, I'll give you one example. The Council of Ephesus 431, you've got in the Acts, um, one of the papal legates saying that, quoting Matthew 16 and applying it to the universal primacy of Pope Celestine I, with the imagery of the keys, the imagery of binding and loosing, as it relates to conducting affairs at at the council, which involves judging doctrine, judging persons, making disciplines, and things like that. So, you know, th- that would be an example. You know, if if a council shows that this is of divine origin, then the Orthodox do not have any grounds to reject it. And so they must accept it, at least to some degree, in order to maintain consistency. You know, so that would be one example. You know, another example would be um, uh, what is the nature of this universal primacy? Is it one of appellate jurisdiction or immediate jurisdiction? Well, appellate jurisdiction, what that means is that you can, that, that Rome could exercise universal authority when it's appealed to. So Rome, Rome basically has to stay behind her walls. She can't come outside of her walls unless somebody throws an appeal over the wall. And then if they open up the paper and say, oh, Germany's making an appeal to Rome. Okay, well, now she can go out of her walls to Germany. Not to everywhere else, but to Germany, mm-hmm. right? So that's an appellate jurisdiction. It's a severely limited jurisdiction, okay? Um, well, there, there's all kinds of constitutional reasons for why that's wrong. And, and the most basic is that uh, when Christ gave St. Peter the keys of the kingdom, he did not, he, he, that's an immediate role and responsibility. So Christ, it's like the, the, the king of kings gives you the right to govern the church. You don't need to get permission from anyone else before you obey the task. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's why the Catholic West has always held that the jurisdiction of the papacy is immediate. Because Christ didn't give the church in general authority. And then the church, you know, the church didn't ordain the papacy. So, for example... If, if Christ gave the church authority to govern, right, all the apostles, all the bishops, and then later on the church decided, you know, it'd be really cool if we had one guy to kind of serve as like an administrative chief. Well, if, if, if that was the state of affairs, then that chief would be sort of bound by an appeal structure. He could not just go around intervening in, t- in internal affairs around the universal church. He'd have to wait until he is appointed, right, 
um, or appealed to in order to um, in order for the church to monitor the legitimacy of that. But that's not how it was created. It was created. Christ gave Peter the keys immediately, directly. No mediator. No mediator. No mediation. See? So the, 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 the nature of the papal jurisdiction is one where the Pope has the right to see damage, abuse, anywhere in the church, and he can go pay attention to it in an authoritative matter. So you brought the uh, the Council of Ephesus part, and that the, the many councils that bring this up, and I'm sure there's many saints or that they both would, uh, maybe like a Cyprian or a Chrysostom, that they would agree with. How do they get around this? Um, do they just like ignore it or like the Ephesus one? How do you, how do you see that, accept it, but then do what you want to do? How, how, what is their argument or do you yeah. know for a fact on yeah. that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So typically what they'll do is they'll say, you know, one of the first resorts is, uh, um, oh, back at this time, they used to say things all the time. You know, if they were writing a letter to the emperor, they would say, you know, uh, to the most holy and reverend and highest glorious official of the universal realm and God, God-inspired empire, the holy of holiest, you know, in other words, they would, they, they, they used a lot of uh, prowess and hyperbole in their uh, addresses of high dignitaries. No, so this is just um, a, uh, you know, is it, dignified language that's, that nobody then would have interpreted as literal, right? Um you know, if you're it, 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 when one when when the bishops were addressed at councils, you know they they would say the the most holy reverend, uh, you know, pontiff of Ephesus. It, it sounds like today we don't use that kind of language that much, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, an Orthodox might say, well, back then, you know, they talked about the successor of Saint Peter in this way. They made those claims, but it was just Byzantine flattery. It was just, it was just old carryovers of late antique prowess in, 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 in a certain literary genre for high dignitaries, you know. Um, so that's, that's one resort that they have, you know. And, and of course, that doesn't explain all the data. Because most of the data is not within contexts where you would expect this kind of highfalutin, honorific language. Do you see? So there's several instances where that explanation would not work. You know. So I, I paid I paid attention to that when I was conducting my research. There are some places where that explanation could work. And and an Orthodox person, uh, I'll give it to them. Yeah, this this context here, that that looks like a, that that just looks like a, an, an honorific, an empty honorific. You know, an honorific that's empty is what I mean. It's not literal in what it's saying. Um, the the other resort that they have is um, they could say things like, uh, "Well, the popes made those claims, and some church fathers made those claims." And perhaps some councils made those claims, but they were not infallible. So today we can reject it. And so this is, you know, another one that uh, Orthodox look to and they say, yeah, you know, uh, Pope Leo the Great, for example. Yeah, he was wrong, completely wrong. Um, The problem with this is that we can ex- we can admit to certain errors in the church fathers okay we we don't believe that they were all infallible but when you start to see church father after church father after church father after church father after council after council 
and it starts to mount and mount and mount and mount. Now we start to get out of the gray and we start looking at, okay, these men were, were just heretics if they were wrong. <laughs> I mean, if they were wrong, I mean, this is getting to the point where we're, we're recognizing far too much poison into the, into the church's tradition. That's it's it's just it's just max capacity. There's there's a certain capacity where you if you start to say that they were wrong, you're basically side to you're elbow to elbow with Martin Luther. You know on how the church fathers were wrong and how councils were wrong, and once you get to that point, then you're you've come into a, an incredible position. Do you see mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Um, and then the other thing that they could say is that. Uh, Yes, you know, this is a very rare voice in the Orthodox Church. They'll say, yes, yes, primacy, yes, absolutely. The successor of St. Peter, Matthew 16, John 20, Luke 23. Yes, absolutely. And he had universal jurisdiction. Amen. But it's just just a layer less than Vatican I. <laughs> um. And so by doing that, they're like, well, you know, yes, you know, because they can't deny the sources. You know, Mm -hmm. they see the sources, they see the papacy, they see that it's of divine origin. They see that the church fathers embraced it, made use of it. So they can't rationally deny it. So what they do is they'll say, well, at Vatican I, the Catholic Church went just a notch too high. So what they they try to accomplish by doing that is, number one, invalidate contemporary Catholicism. But they do a second thing that fires back upon them. And that is they admit that the sources prove just, just a layer less than Vatican I. But if we go with that little layer less than Vatican I, that's still demonstrably more than what they have ever admitted in their entire career since the since the 11th century. So they invalidate they they invalidate Catholicism by showing Vatican I went just a little bit too far and they invalidate themselves by showing that the truth is just a little bit less. Um, if that makes sense. Um, so those are like the three primary arguments and 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 I'm I'm sure they sound good at first, but when you start to chip away, I think they start to lose their 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 the the, the strength that they initially have. That last part reminds me of a friend of mine reading the Summa, and the objections. He's going, I agree with this. I'm a heretic. I agree with the objections. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Pope Saint Gregory the Great. I saw that in the book and going, what is that? That interests me. That was an amazing story that I had no clue about. Can you expound on that a little bit? It seemed like it was just like a, they use out of context, like a Protestant, taking out of context what he said or what his background is to spin it to their way. Yes. Yeah, so in, 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 in contemporary Orthodox dialogue, um, Pope Gregory the Great is often a figure that is brought up um, in particular because of a certain controversy in the 6th century with the patriarch of Constantinople who start he started referring to himself and it's actually not him starting it it was it's it had been a long time practice in Constantinople to refer to the patriarch as the universal patriarch or the ecumenical patriarch so today even um the uh the Patriarch of Constantinople over there in Istanbul, um, he's most notably known and referred to as the Ecumenical Patriarch. Hmm. That's a pretty ancient title for, you know, that the Byzantines gave uh, Constantinople. But Pope Gregory the Great was not privy to that. So when when he heard about it, he thought that, what is this guy doing with this title? You know, and so he wrote letters to John of Constantinople. That's that was the patriarch's name at the time, John. Um, 
And he wrote letters to other people as well. Basically saying there is no such thing as an ecumenical patriarch. How dare this man use that title? Each one of us, each one of us is just a bishop. We're like a star in the sky. You have many stars in the sky. Uh, there is no one star. You see, so from a certain you know from a certain point of view, it looks like Pope Gregory is saying that there's that each bishop is is just you know the leader of his own community, and that there is no one bishop who governs them all, you know, or the the one ring to rule them all type of thing. Um, and that's what it looks like if you read just two or three of his letters. Um, but if you read more, and obviously the scholars on Gregory who have done this, um, they're quick to point out that you can't just go by three letters. You have to read all his letters. I mean, there's like 50 or 60. Well, no, there's probably like 150 letters in Gregory's corpus that are translated into English. There's no excuse anymore. We all we have the sources. If you just read all of his letters, it becomes very clear that he did believe in the papacy. However, he saw this title as inappropriate for a couple of reasons. Number one, it implied that there are no other bishops in the world. So if you have the title universal bishop, that means that every other bishop is really his priest. You see, mm -hmm. and that's not that's not even part of Roman Catholic ecclesiology. So Gregory was that's the kind of imagination he was looking at is is this idea of a universal bishop, universal patriarch. Um, that's that's just, you know, it, it, it would be making everyone his priest. And that's wrong. It's obviously wrong. Uh, the other thing is that it's it's too, it, that as Christians we're called to be servants and the higher we go up in the hierarchy of the church, we're even further servants. And this is why he, he is the one that uh, is famous for using the, the term that the Pope is the servant of the servants of God. Right. And because he thought that the higher up you go, the more humble, the more, more of a servant you have to be. So he saw the title as as inappropriate for that reason as well. But, you know, to wrap this thing up on Gregory, you have all these other letters where he's very clear when, that when push comes to shove and he has to exercise jurisdiction, he does it, not just in Rome, but anywhere in the West or the East. And he, and he justified it based on the three Petrine commissions in Matthew uh, and John. And Luke, so um, that he's he's basically of he's like a monastic pope, you know. That's why he's famous for his dialogues. He's famous for his book on pastoral care, um, and the Eastern Orthodox love Pope Gregory the Great. Um, but if you if you research his entire writings, and this is even Orthodox scholars recognize this, like Doctor George Demacopoulos, who's a, a Byzantinist. Uh, you know, researcher of the uh, early church, even he admitted that, you know, Pope Gregory the Great understood himself to be uh, a div the divinely instituted universal primate. So there's a little bit of inconsistency in Gregory, but further research kind of peels back the truth on that. I have everything in the show notes. Here's his blog, Eric Ibarra, wordpress.com. The stpaulcenter.com for the book, uh, The Papacy. We're visiting the debate between Catholics and Orthodox. You know the drill. Be underneath in the show notes. Just click that show more. If I'm still on YouTube by then, it'll be underneath there. If it's on Spiritus TV, you know, the Catholic only channel, uh, it'll be underneath there. They got show notes too as well. Eric, thank you for doing all this. Is there anything that I missed out on that you went, man, I hope this guy would say, ask me this question? Was there any burning thing that we missed out on? No, everything was really good. Um, we got into the the basics, and that's what we set out to do. Um, all I would say is that uh, I have some other books. If anybody's interested in reading, um, uh, if you go to, if you go, yeah, right there, that picture. 
um, those are my other books. Um, one on the filioque justification, um, Melchizedek and the Last Supper. Uh, and then that far one to the right there, the Church Fathers on Rebaptism. Um, I don't know if that's left or right for the viewers, but uh, it, it, that's that's a controversy that is between uh, Orthodox and Catholics, or some Orthodox and and Catholics on the issue of uh, on rebaptizing. So, yeah, those are the other writings. If anybody's further interested. Maybe for Christmas, people get out there. Here's a way to evangelize. Buy a book, give it to your local Eastern Orthodox uh, <laughs> priest parish. Maybe they'll write it. Maybe they'll read it. Maybe they won't. But, hey, you're yeah. giving it a shot. At least you're getting that in their hands. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, most times I'll tell people, buy this book for your seminary. Maybe you can do that, too. Buy this book and get it out to some of the Eastern Orthodox friends you know to help evangelize them a little bit. And uh, maybe they'll bring them into the one true Catholic faith. Amen. Eric, appreciate your time, man. Thanks again, and uh, congratulations on the book. Thank you.